0: Hiki mai, kāke mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. I'm a ho. A few weeks ago on the show, we heard how DNA doesn't doom you when it comes to your risk of heart disease. Although in coronary heart disease, when plaque can block arteries leading to a heart attack, half the risk is inherited. And it turns out that some people's coronary arteries are just more prone to getting blocked than others. That's partly down to the size of the arteries and how flexible they are, as well as the shape and curves of the different junctions where the arteries branch off. To find out more, Suzanne Beer at the University of Auckland has been mapping cardiac arteries in sick and healthy people. The work is a mix of engineering and fluid dynamics and medicine.
2: What happens if, say, you smoke and you eat badly, that... A plaque builds up inside of certain areas of your cardiovascular system, mainly the arteries leading to the brain, which would cause a stroke. Or the arteries supplying the heart and that's what I'm focusing on and that can cause a heart attack for example. Hmm. So what is it in particular about those arteries leading to the heart that you're interested in? So the coronaries supply the heart muscle with blood and they're really tiny and they're constantly moving and they are very unique for each individual as well and because they are so difficult to assess because, you know, they're hidden behind the lungs, around the heart, moving and everything. Um, It has been a huge challenge in research so far. So uh, what my team and I have been doing is we've been looking at the coronaries of many, many people all across Oakland, patients who came in to seek standard clinical care, and we assess their medical images.
0: So these medical images are taken how?
2: they use what they call a ct angiogram effectively it's it's a 2d grayscale image of many different slices across your chest and um, i look at these images and then i can regenerate a 3d model a virtual model of your artery tree which is which is really cool because then we can see the differences between individuals in a large population how i analyze it is i run computational simulations of their blood flow because the blood flow introduces shear stresses at the inner vessel wall lining, which means that these stresses determine where the plug will enter the arterial wall and accumulate. So if we understand the stress, we understand where the plug will go, which is great because it gives you an indication of the disease susceptibility of the individual. How many individuals did you look at? We looked at more than 500 patients, which is the largest data set today in the entire world, yeah. So nobody has done this before, which is quite exciting.
0: Now, were these all people who already had coronary heart disease, or did you have some healthy people in there we, as well? We did
2: have some healthy people as well. Yeah. So w- what happens is that sometimes you can have symptoms where the doctor might want to make sure, or oh, is this a risk patient or not? So you might go and get an angiogram, this angiogram I was talking about earlier, anyway, and but might have to go, go out of the clinic again and say, oh, I'm all oh, good nothing to worry about whereas other patients may get something which is called a stent implant now a stent is a meshed wire tube which uh, is implanted into the narrowed artery to open it up again and uh, that is one of the end applications of my research to improve those stents um, improving their design Hmm. and the way it's implanted so these sheer stresses in the arteries. What's causing that? So the blood flow itself. Actually, it's um, if you imagine a river and a riverbed. Sometimes you have rapids or really strong curvature, and it's sort of the flow is altered according to the shape of the riverbed. And it's very much the same in our bodies. So the arteries shape the way our blood flows through them, and with the heartbeat and the tension of the vessel wall together, this. Can can create these stresses which can yeah then lead to plaque accumulation. And you were finding that different individuals
0: had different shear stress points in different places.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. So it's very uh, shape dependent, very geometry dependent. So um, we found some patients who have really narrow, small, slender arteries and their stress profile looks very different to say another patient which we see just as frequently who might have very strong wide angles in in their branches and um, very thick and uh, big, big arteries. Hmm. So
0: what is it that you're looking for? I mean, how can you identify where the stress is going to happen?
2: This is a really cool, powerful tool. It's called uh, Computational Fluid Dynamics, or the experts call it CFD. And what it does is um, it runs tons of mathematical equations in the background in fact i'm using the national supercomputing cluster this is also used to predict new zealand's weather by the way i'm the second largest client <laughs> after the weather people and so I, I have my geometry i have my boundary conditions they call it so i define the blood flow going in and everything and then uh, the computer calculates it all, so it splits it up in tiny little elements and equations and calculates it all night long on hundreds of computers with Tons of computer power, and uh, in the end, I get a I get a prediction. So with a very high confidence level, so we can say a, a simulation, a confidence simulation, where we can say, okay, this is the blood flow, and therefore the stress we will see in that patient, without ever having to open up the patient. So it's it's great because it's non-invasive, it's very safe, and uh, it can be repeated multiple times. And then, of course, I. Can can for example virtually implant stents and then see what kind of effect that stent could have in that particular patient.
0: Can you also generate a physical model of, of the artery?
2: Yes, so that's an excellent question because um, that, that is the next step. That's what I'm just working on now because um, what I'm now going to do is we also 3D print these models so we have a soft or hard models of the of the arteries of individual patients and then implant stands physically in, in these models and then uh, again virtualize them, run simulations, see how much it varies if it varies at all, and so forth. This can function as um, a training base for clinicians, for example. They can practice their surgery before they even go in. And um, what we're really aiming at as well is that we try to generate new clinical guidelines. So what happens at the moment is that um, there are so many different types of stents out there, and nobody really knows which stent is best. But some stents still fail in some patients, and it's not quite understood why. So looking at um, all these different patients across a large population and identifying the differences and understanding what the same stent may cause in two different patients is extremely important because then we can really move from this generic approach which we have today to a personalized approach which would be so much more effective. What have you got on the table there? Can we look at it? This is one of the patient arteries so it's a it's a patient specific artery so this is the left main so the first left branch Supplying the heart muscle of arteries, hmm. looks like a stick off a tree. <laughs> yes, it really does. <laughs> so a single it? stick that branches into two. Yeah, yeah. And what sort of patient did that come from? This was a female patient actually, in her in her sixties, very little disease, and she didn't go ahead and have a stent, which is good for her. So beta blockers were enough, and um, yeah, it's a it's quite a. Pretty geometry, may I say. <laughs> so are these big arteries or small arteries? This is a fairly small artery, and there's quite a strong curvature in one of the branches. You can see here, and then sort of it sort of rolls off to the other side, and the other branch goes down, which is quite interesting. So that definitely generates an interesting uh, stress profile. So here, for example, we could identify that the disease will, will grow where the bend is and by the twist and so forth. And what that can also reveal is that I can now generate statistical shape markers which will cause bad stress. This is... For me, at least, also really exciting, because what it means that in future, a patient could go to the doctor, get a medical image done, and then using machine learning techniques, imaging techniques, and so forth, the computer can then automatically identify, based on our research, what the bad shape characteristics are and their score, so say this patient here would have a score of, say, maybe 6 out of 10 for curvature, and that is bad. So then we can say, okay, so your risk, your personal individual risk is that high.
0: And here are your options.
2: Yes, absolutely. Now, I'm curious, that
0: artery there you said was modeled on one from a woman. Do you see Measurable
2: differences between men versus women, or between people from different races. Oh, absolutely, huge differences. So ethnicity is a is a very important factor. So the shape differences we see, it's it's largely um, genetic, obviously. And then male and female uh, very much a similar story because females are often smaller, the hearts are smaller, and then say the arteries are more curved and sometimes twisted, and also between ages. So we age and our arteries age as well, and with that, the shape changes. So all of this is very interesting considerations, yeah. So what I can do with all this data is that I can profile it. So we generate um, population groups, and then we can look at the patient and we can say, oh, okay, you fit this, this and this criteria. So you're in this shape group and then probably these are your best options.
0: Hmm. Does the artery wall
2: stiffen as you get older? Yes, it gets stiffer, it gets wider. So there's
0: not a lot you can do about your genetics. The, sh- the shape you've got is the shape you've got.
2: Yeah, but I your mean... your lifestyle
0: is what can the help the lifestyle
2: clear? Lifestyle is the massive thing. It's 60%. It is the overweighing majority, so it's not not all bad news. Definitely smoking is so bad. Try to have a Mediterranean diet and um, that's, that's really all what it comes down to. And the thing is, um, eight-year-olds have artery disease these days. So it's really down to the society and what foods are sh- cheap as well you know what foods are affordable which is really sad but um, trying to make an an effort and uh, your body will thank you in the long term.
0: It's interesting because it, when you see it there and it just reminds you that that really all your arteries and veins are just a series of pipes and you need to keep them clear.
2: <laughs> yes yes absolutely that's exactly it yeah.
0: That was Suzanne Beer a research fellow at the University of Auckland Suzanne and her team have just developed the world's first online coronary atlas which aims to understand the reasons why coronary stents fail and help find ways to improve them. You'll find a link to the coronary atlas on our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld Kei te whakaronga mai kwae ki tō tātou au Horihori ki o Aotearoa this is Our Changing World on RNZ National, and now, lizards. We have more than a hundred species of skinks and geckos in New Zealand. They can be very surreptitious, which is probably why we're still discovering new species of them. And there's a lot we don't know about even some of the more common species, which got Victoria University of Wellington student Chris Woolley wondering. He wants to know what lizard species we have in our cities, how many of them there are, and what we could do to give them a helping hand. I meet Chris at one of his research sites, which is a somewhat unexpected lizard hotspot in Wellington.
1: So this is a site that I'm particularly interested in because it's quite marginal. It's a very small patch of land. It's mainly prosmas, tussock and harakeke, but it's really sandwiched between this very busy road and the water, and I've noticed there are lizards here.
0: What are you looking at in
1: particular? Right, so the project that I'm working on is part of a much bigger project called People, Cities and Nature, which is led by Professor Bruce Clarkson at Waikato University. So the project itself is um, looking at ecological restoration in cities and answering the question about how we can uh, encourage nature to flourish in in our cities. So there's nine cities that are being used across the country and there's six different research streams. Three of them are social, and they're looking at um, people's relationships with nature um, and different cultural aspects of that. And three of them are ecological. And my project on lizards comes under one of the ecological angles. So the other two are replanting vegetation angle, and there's a a mammal monitoring um, aspect as well. So with the lizard project, we're trying to work out what lizards occur where in urban environments and what can be done to restore them.
0: Okay, so why don't you take me and show me what you're doing. Sure, so we're just over here.
1: I've got three stations along here, one of which is a pitfall trap site, and we'll have a look at that, and I can talk you through the setup of the the pitfall traps. And then the other two on either side of it are um, ACO sites. ACOs are what? Artificial (laughs) cover objects. And these I'm using is part of my citizen science angle, getting members of the public to check them. So we're in here.
0: So, we better describe a pitfall trap. It's basically a bucket dug it's into the bucket. ground.
1: Yeah, it's a four litre um, pail. The buckets go into the ground so that the opening is flush with the surface. And on top of them, we have these lids that are propped up on, on what looks like kind of tent pegs, and that provides shelter from the sun, shelter from yep. the rain. Um, and prevents bird predation. Inside them you'll see a mesh grill and that is to help prevent mouse predation because obviously we're working in urban environments and it's not like a predator-proof sanctuary where we can we be confident that we don't have rodents. So there is a need to try and mitigate that if possible.
0: So you've got a few of these scattered through the grass? That's
1: right. So there's 25 um, in a 5x5 grid oh, <laughs> at 12 sites around the city. And that's being replicated across four different cities for my part of the project.
0: So what other cities are you working
1: in? I'm looking at Hamilton, um, Nelson and Needham as well as here in Wellington. So this is trap number VA7. And we'll lift it up and have a wee look around inside. So in here I'll throw in a bit of debris to make the lizards feel relatively comfortable. There's a moist sponge to prevent them um, desiccating. So we use pear as a food for them. It's nice and sweet, and they, they do like it. Um, and it also acts as a little bit of a lure. And there's the, the wire mesh. Because
0: I imagine mice and rats are a big problem for lizards in cities.
1: Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of trapping going on here in Wellington, and a lot of the focus is on, um, on increasing bird abundance. And everything that threatens birds pretty much um, also has a negative impact on lizards and more. So with things like hedgehogs that people don't often think about and of course cats are a real problem.
0: Yes, I was somewhere this morning and um, somebody had some lizards and this woman came along and said, oh, my cat catches them all the time, so yeah. that's the classic story.
1: That's a, a really popular thing that I've been hearing as I've been um, getting around houses and recruiting citizen scientists, especially their cat used to catch them and the numbers just went gradually lower and lower. So there is, I think, potential that we're seeing declining trends in lizards in cities, and it's just a matter of trying to quantify that so that we know more. Oh, there's one. Oh,
0: there we go. Now that's a beautiful wee thing. So Mm -hmm. who's that?
1: So that is a uh, a common skink, or a northern grass skink. And um, you can see that he's suffered some tail loss.
0: They do that to distract whatever's hunting them, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do, but it's, it's something that some people don't realise is that it is at a cost to the, the animal. Obviously, they're, they're losing some of their fat storage and that sort of thing. It's not an ideal situation.
0: Now, the purpose of these pitfall traps, what is it?
1: These traps allow us to catch the lizards and then process them by hand. So we, we weigh them and we measure them and uh, we can sex them. And this allows us to, to understand some some things about the population we also mark them and that means that when we come back if we're catching the same individual time after time we can run it through some sort of algorithm that will estimate the population size in um, urban environments lizards could do really well they they can cope with small patches they don't move very much and so it's possible to restore them in your own backyard we'll head up over here to the uh the aco
0: Okay, so an ACO, your artificial cover,
1: is what exactly? Well, it's it's made of a bitumen soaked fabric, I believe, which is um, it's used in as a roofing material and as a cladding sometimes. Is that what they call angeline? On yeah, angeline, that's right. And we use it in sheets that are forty by fifty centimeters. It's corrugated. And. It's the thermal properties, nobody home under here. So Um, you just
0: lifted it up, so you were expecting perhaps to have a lizard or two sitting underneath. Yes, that's right,
1: potentially. The material itself gets very warm in the sun, um, and it heats up and it retains its heat. The reason we use two is to increase the surface area, I guess. Um, And also some lizards, particularly geckos, like to squeeze themselves between two warm surfaces. So you can see pretty low-tech. We've just stuck some sticks between the two layers in order to keep them about a finger width apart.
0: So this could be something that I could use in my garden as a way of providing a safe place for the lizards?
1: That's right. Yeah, so with my citizen science aspect, there's two angles that I'm taking to my monitoring. The first is this pitfall trapping idea. So at 12 sites in each of the cities I'm working, I'm doing intensive pitfall monitoring, and that gives me a range of different data. I can I can look at the health of the population by looking at um, the body condition based on the the mass of the animal versus its um, its length, and I can look at the size of the population, those sorts of things. The ACOs can be used for that as well if you're fast enough to catch them, if you're checking them at certain times of the day. But I'm I'm using them to to engage people to do my um, data collection by um, by giving them to people in their backyards to be citizen scientists and record data. Uh, and whatever data they can gather, it's fairly untried. And so it may just be that we can, we can get presence data out of it. So people who previously didn't see skinks or geckos in their backyard now do. And we can look at the intensity with which they're, they're monitoring, the sort of search effort they're putting into it, and compare that to what they're seeing. And this provides us a standardised way for them to be recording some data. So that's happening in backyards and some of the backyards people have been willing for me also to dig in pitfall traps and the idea is to calibrate the use of this citizen science um, ACO approach against my pitfall trapping.
0: So how many lizard species do we have here in Wellington City? So these, these guys?
1: So New Zealand has two families of lizards and those are skinks and geckos and in Wellington we have about four species of skinks, and at least three species of um, gecko. So the ones that people are most likely to see in their backyards are things like the, um, the northern grass skink, um, brown skinks, or the, the glossy brown skinks now, the ornate skink and uh, the copper skink are the, the four skink species. And, of course, the geckos are slightly more... I think they're slightly more charismatic and they tend to hang around a little bit longer, they're a little bit slower. <laughs> the beautiful green geckos that we have here and then the forest and the common gecko. Yeah. Now,
0: are we likely to find all of these in gardens or are some of them better in gardens than others? Do some need more intact forest?
1: Well, these are the sorts of things that we don't really know. I think it depends on where your backyard is, and if it's a lot of manicured lawn and planted gardens, I think it's less likely to have to have anything. But in certain locations and places that, that border reserves, and particularly untidy, messy backyards with long grass or piles of sticks, um, people say that in their wood piles around Wellington they certainly get geckos. And, yeah, I've got a, a friend in Karori who... Um, has a a, a lovely stone garden around a picnic table um, with lots of natives planted there, and he gets skinks. So I'm I'm not sure. It's a combination of what you have in the um, exact location in your backyard, so in terms of the basking surfaces and the crevices for things to hide in, but it's also where you are in the city and how close you are to existing populations of lizards.
0: Well, I have house geckos, and I say that they're house geckos because they do actually live in my house. So... They live in the in the wall and they commute between inside and outside and I find them round about yeah. inside foraging around in the pantry. And, You're very lucky. Um, I know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm super excited about them, which is why I don't have a cat. But if I, if I didn't see them in the house, I wouldn't know I had geckos.
1: Mm, that's right. I think a lot of people won't know what they have until they potentially start monitoring. And that's one of the things that I'm... I'm really excited about people who who have become citizen scientists who don't think they have anything. I'm hoping that some of them may discover certain aspects of biodiversity be it lizards or other invertebrates that are kind of cool in their backyards that they didn't know they had.
0: You're carrying out the study in four different cities are you expecting to find very similar results or do you think they could be quite different?
1: Probably different results and I think that will It could depend on a lot of different things. The distribution of lizards across the country does vary um, in terms of the the biogeography of lizards. So species that occur in the North Island don't necessarily occur in the South Island. And there's also regional differences within islands. So there could be differences like that, but there could also be differences because of things like temperature and the interaction that has with predators. In cooler environments, there might be lizards may not be able to move as fast and so predation could have a greater effect and so it could be that um, species that have survived because they're able to move faster and that allows them to not be predated upon in the North Island, that's not true for the South Island. It also depends on the, sort of, um, the history of the city as well, um, the amount of vegetation that's been cleared and the sort of environments that have been preserved. So I think we're very fortunate here in Wellington and I'm not sure that there'll be another city which can compete with the number of lizards that we have here.
0: That was Chris Woolley from Victoria University of Wellington and the People's Cities Nature Research Project. And that's our show. But you can listen to those stories again and find links to related stories in our back catalogue at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there, why not subscribe to our weekly email newsletter? You can also subscribe to us as a podcast at Stitcher, Radio Public, Spotify, iTunes and on the RNZ app. Thanks for your company. But for now, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tōpō.